Welcome to another episode of Behind the Blazer. In this episode, our host, Scott Sempier, chatted over Zoom with the Philadelphia Ballet's artistic director, Angel Correa, and their conductor, Beatrice Afron. They talk about the history and educational programs of the Philadelphia Ballet, Angel's performing success, and the collaboration between the Philadelphia Boys Choir and the Philadelphia Ballet. Scott also spends time talking with first soloist, Sydney Dolan, about how she came to the ballet and her first experience with the Philadelphia Boys Choir. Enjoy! Behind the Blazers, the official podcast of the Philadelphia Boys Choir and Chorale. We've been singing in Philadelphia and all around the globe for over 50 years. As America's ambassadors of song, we have had many fantastic experiences, traveling to many different countries and meeting amazingly talented and wonderful people. The great leadership and high standards of the choir have allowed us to have these opportunities. This podcast, Behind the Blazer, is designed to introduce you to the Philadelphia Boys Choir culture. Season 2, in particular, highlights some of the many partners we have had in the Philadelphia region who have joined us to help create even more excellent music. In 1963, Barbara Weisberger realized her dream of bringing the best in dance to Philadelphia when she founded the Pennsylvania Ballet. Through George Balanchine's encouragement, she worked hard to find local talent and develop the artists into world-class performers. Within five years, her efforts led to the first national spotlight for the Pennsylvania Ballet. Continuing success and performing excellence established more than just a regional or national reputation for the ballet. Hiring Benjamin Harcarvey in 1982 brought European choreography to the company and continued to bolster the ballet's excellence and now international acclaim. Beatrice Jonah Afron entered the scene in 1993, known around the continent for her acumen in conducting both ballets and opera. Beatrice has continually served the ballet, particularly since rising to the role of music director and conductor in 1997. In 2014, the ballet hired Angel Correa to be its artistic director. Correa had achieved his own international dancing success more than any Spanish dancer, typified when he earned the spot of principal dancer for the American Ballet Theater. In 2021, the Pennsylvania Ballet became the Philadelphia Ballet. And here I am on Zoom talking with Angel Correa, artistic director, and Beatrice Afron, music director and conductor for the Philadelphia Ballet. Welcome to you, and thank you for joining us on Behind the Blazer. Thank you, Scott. Thank you. So first off, I want to talk about the culture of the Philadelphia Ballet. In 2021, you changed your name, as I just said, from the Pennsylvania Ballet to the Philadelphia Ballet. So what are the reasons for this change? Well, as you mentioned, Barbara Weisberger, her first, when she initiated all the work to create this incredible ballet company, her first thought was to name it Philadelphia Ballet. But at that time, there was another company or school that had that name, so she could not do it. There was a legal battle, and then at the end, she decided to settle for Pennsylvania Ballet. So she passed away, unfortunately, last year. Was it last year already? Beatrice? It was. My God, time flies. So we wanted to honor her to try to revisit the going back into her wish. And also we have been seeing more and more that, you know, our community, everyone that lives in Philadelphia loves us and loves everything that is part of our community. You know, the Philadelphia Orchestra, the Philadelphia Museum, the Philadelphia Opera. So we wanted to be part of that 
group of arts organizations that are part of Philadelphia, that are part of the community. And uh, always honoring the past because as Beatrice can tell you, you know, the past of the company has been where it got us here. But I think it's important to look into the future and looking into the future, we want it to be with the name of the city that we live in and the people that loves us, which is the Philadelphia communities. But still, we'll be going out and trying to be an international company as we've been doing up until now. How much of a difficulty did that cause to change the name like that? Did you have something where there's a bridge? Well, change is not always easy. <laughs> so sometimes you have to work in advance to try to make sure that everyone understands the reasons why not everyone is going to be happy. You have to always have that in mind. But most people were happy about the name change. And in some cases, they were even waiting for a long time for this change to, to happen. So we actually, when we announced that we were now Philadelphia Ballet, we were going to New York on a tour and everyone was mentioning, you know, we were all waiting for you to be named the Philadelphia Ballet. We were all waiting for that. So all the comments were very positive. That's awesome. So you just mentioned that you were on tour. How often do you tour and to where do you tour usually when you do? And not as often as we would like. We have been to New York. We have been to a few places, you know, outside Philadelphia. But I think that is important that to be called an international company, that we go on tour. The Philadelphia Orchestra became, of course, because of the quality of their playing, but also they became very popular when they started to go to China, to Japan, to be really an international orchestra. So I think that in the future, we wanted to be able to go on tour. And there's a lot of interest out there. There's interest from China, from Spain and Europe, even places here in the United States. So I think it's important that not only our community gets to see us and wonderful dancers and musicians of the, of the Philadelphia Ballet, but also mm -hmm. other communities as well. Thinking about the mission of the Philadelphia Ballet, you say it's to cultivate an enduring appreciation for dance through world-class performance, to inspire the next generation with exceptional education and professional training, and to connect with the community through meaningful and inclusive programming. How does the ballet do this? Well, on top of all the performances that we do, we have a community education program that goes to all the different schools that teach them what we do, that involves them into what we do. We also have a lot of performances and dress rehearsals that we have all these different buses and schools that they come into the theater. There's a lot still to be done because I think that ballet a classical ballet in this case, there's a misconception about what we really do. And I think that it's really important that we try to make it very clear to everyone that it should be accessible, that it should be, that we are part of your community. Dance is part of what, who we are and dance is part of what we do. I mean, a lot of the times that I always say the way that you use your hands, the way you use your, your body, it, your body language is saying a lot about you. So we all have a little bit of a dancer inside of us. So I think that it's, something that is like music or painting. It's part of us as human beings and we should make it more accessible and we should make it, people should not feel afraid of going to the theater and saying, I don't really understand what I'm seeing because you don't really need to understand and that's what we're trying to get out. You don't really need to understand art. You just have to enjoy it and feel it. And I think that that is a misconception about a lot of the arts in our society that you know, if I'm afraid, I'm not going to understand it, so I'm not going to go. So also this year, we tried to do the opening night of the Nutcracker. It was a $10 ticket for everyone. So wow. it, it was a good way to access to a show that in some cases, some people 
don't have the luxury of seeing it. So we're looking into maybe doing that again in the future. So there's a lot of ways that we can get into our society, but it's always challenging when you, there's so little time and so little people. Well, well, I should also mention, I mean, I don't know as much about this as nearly as Anhel, but we do have a second company of younger dancers who go out into the community and perform. So not all of the performances take place at the big theaters. And from the orchestra's point of view, we've started small in terms of bringing people in. This year, I started an apprenticeship program, and I have a wonderful conducting apprentice whose name is Nazir McFadden, who is a wonderful young man from Philadelphia who is a conductor and who is working on his conducting and his clarinet playing, and hoping to grow that program as well, because thus far, the orchestra hasn't really had an educational mission. And I'm very excited at the prospect of developing that. That's wonderful. Of course, we also have a school that that's the the food for the company. We're hoping that in the future, only the dancers from our school would feed into the company. So the company would be mainly dancers from our school until we're looking into expanding and getting our building finished because we haven't finished our building. Once that happens, uh, then our school can expand and then hopefully we can also do some. I think that the community, when they understand where you are and your home and what you do, I think that that's when people really feel like they want to be part of it. Are those the programs, the PB2 and School of Philadelphia Ballet? Either way, if you wouldn't mind expanding upon what you do with those. Yes, we have, as Beatrice has mentioned, we have a younger company, PB2 or Philadelphia Ballet 2. And what they do is that they go to different communities. They have their specific program. Like right now, they're actually doing Snow White. It's a completely different program than what the company does. And they go to communities, they go to different schools, they go to different small theaters to perform for these kids and to work and reach to other communities that in some cases they don't have the access. So we go to them instead of bringing them to us, we go to them. That reminds me of how you've attracted so many people from so many states for your summer intensives. I saw that there are people from California, Texas, Minnesota, and Washington, among others. How have you established such a strong reputation for reaching into those areas? Well, I think that the quality quality is always a, a very important part of what we do. I think that especially with school and training, the word to mouth, that's how you say it? Word, word of mouth. mouth. <laughs> okay, there we go. That's really important. So if you do a great job one summer that everyone talks about it and they tell other dancers around the world, the ballet world is quite small. And especially in schools, it's quite small. So, although it's really, really big, a lot of kids, but everyone sort of knows each other. So I think that it's important to create a great quality. And of course, having great training throughout the summer program, but you can't teach a dancer to dance in two months or a month and a half. So also a little bit of fun and a little bit of understanding what it's like to be a ballet dancer. It's also important when you're teaching the kids. I'm also always part of the summer program, although I'm not the director of the school. We have a director in the school, Jim Payne, who's been directing the school for the past three years. But I'm always involved in the summer program. So everyone can see that there is that step of going or second company into our company. So it's always been really fun, although I don't interact that much with the school. But it's always great to have the time to see what the future in ballet is. Yeah. And that leads up to my next question. How do people progress from you know, the summer intensive to the PB2, and then eventually your performing company. How have you seen that progress and what does it take to earn a spot in the Philadelphia Ballet? 
Well, actually, we've seen a lot of people that came to the summer program. We asked them to stay for the rest of the year, and then they stay for the rest of the year, and they join the second company, and now they're part of the company. And in one of the cases, one of our first soloists, that's the way that we got to meet her. She actually joined the summer program, and I thought she was an excellent dancer. Her name is Sydney Dolan. And then she decided to stay for the rest of the year. She was only 13 at the time, I think. She was actually in the second company when she was 15 years old in the younger company. And then she joined the company when she was 16, which is very unusual. And now she's 20 and she's already a first soloist to be principal dancer very soon. So um, I think that we have a few dancers that they went through the ranks like that. And Mm -hmm. it's wonderful to see. It's a great opportunity for us to see new talent and to see what the future of dance is going to be. That's amazing. And to think about how young she was. So what do dancers in that situation do for school? Do you have tutors or how does that work? Yes. Well, they usually study online. And the amazing part is that they're actually so professional. And so they feel like adults. They're so ethical about everything. And to be a ballet dancer, you really have to grow much faster. That I mean, I think that to be an artist in general, you have to grow a lot faster. We see them in the hallways sitting on the floor in their computers. They're studying at the same time that they're dancing and they're dedicating all their lives into dancing. But the amazing part is that when you're a dancer, you have to do both. You have to learn a career and at the same time do another career, which is a career as a dancer. When you're a dancer, you don't work with books, you work with your body. (laughs) That's mainly where you have to spend the time if you really want to be a dancer. And you have to do it when you're young because then when you're getting older, your muscles, tendons, ligaments, they start to tell you, no, you cannot do that. You can't put your, my body in that position. It's not natural and I won't do it. So, <laughs> you know, as a company, we try to make it as easy as possible for them to be able to accommodate both the school and to be able to be training. But the case of Sydney Dolan, it's, it's a really rare. It's not the norm. Okay. I should okay. say, though, how remarkable it is that these kids sitting in our very narrow hallway in our very much too small building, which hopefully soon will be enlarged, and somehow they're getting their high school educations sitting on the floor in a very narrow hallway and working so hard. I'm always impressed and stunned by the resilience of these young dancers. It's really something. And some of them, they even get degrees. I mean, I don't even know how they do it. Oh, yeah. Some of them go to college part-time, like Penn, plays in Drexel. Yeah, it's very inspiring. It's like asking someone to be a lawyer and a doctor. (laughs) Scott Sempier got to talk with Sydney Dolan herself, even though she is still only 20 years old. Sydney performed the feature role as Odette in Swan Lake in 2022. Let's listen on on what she had to say. I have this opportunity to sit down through Zoom with Sydney Dolan, who is associated with the Philadelphia Ballet, of course, as Angel Correa told us. She's the first soloist in the Philadelphia Ballet. And I'm so glad to have you on Behind the Blazer. Thanks so much, Sydney, for joining us today. So much for having me. You're welcome. It's my pleasure. First off, your hometown is listed as Philadelphia. When did you first learn about the Philadelphia Ballet? I was born in Philadelphia. And I was, I think, four years old. My family and I moved to Northern Virginia. And we were there for a few years. And just due to parents changing jobs. And then we moved to North Carolina from there when I was around eight. And that's kind of where I started taking ballet seriously and having most of my memories. But I was born in Philly. I actually did not really hear about Philadelphia Ballet. Previously was Pennsylvania Ballet until... 
the, the turnaround, the previous director resigned and on held over. And that was a lot of things, a lot of buzz in the ballet world. And I heard about it. And that's kind of when my attention was drawn Philadelphia Ballet because I always had been a huge fan of Angel and his dancing. So many of his videos I watched on on YouTube. So he was very much someone who inspired me. Even though it, as, a, as a ballerina, you you look at a lot of other ballerinas, but he was definitely, as far as male dancing goes, just someone that I loved so much. That's awesome. Angel mentioned you as an exceptionally young dancer who earned this right to be part of the Philadelphia Ballet performing in the ballet, in the performing ballet. How old were you when you became part of the performing ballet? So it's actually a funny story. It's one of my fondest memories of my career so far, just because it's so, so special. I was 15 at the time. I was doing my normal school in North Carolina, my ballet training. I was doing homeschooling and I was working in the mornings with my teacher and I do school. And then at night I would go back and take class. During the summer, there was a little bit of a break of classes and our studios were closed. And I had a friend of mine have a connection with the previous directors of the School of Philadelphia Ballet at the time. And they were able to have us go in to take class at the Philadelphia Ballet for a summer program. And I was able to, with that connection that I made with my friend, to come up to Philadelphia from North Carolina to participate in the company experience as kind of a way to experience that and to meet Angel. And that was one of the biggest things, too, to be able to take class and actually work and be in the same room as Angel. But it's also kind of a way for me to like get back in the studio and work for the next year of training. I remember I got here and I took class the first day and I had a conversation on how like, who are you? I hadn't, I hadn't introduced myself before the class. And most of the students in the class had already been there the whole summer. So I was kind of just there and we had a conversation. We kind of introduced each other. He asked me where I was from. I gave him a little bit of information about me. And then a few days later, he called me into his office and he told me, I really want to offer you a second company position. And I was 15. And also I was only coming to take class. I did not expect to get any offer at all. So I was white as a sheet. I couldn't even believe it because I, I didn't even know what that meant. So he essentially offered me that position and I didn't even know say because that was just such a surprise to me and then later on we were having more meetings discussing it and seeing you know where would I live all of these things and he asked me how old I was because that hadn't come up yet I said I'm 15 and it was just the crazy thing I'd never seen that like look on his face before that's a fun story and a great beginning to your time in the Philadelphia Ballet but now look at what you've done think about Swan Lake I had the pleasure of seeing you as Odette Nodil in Swan Lake. You know, I wanted to take my daughter to see Swan Lake, and I had heard about you because I had talked to Angel and Beatrice, and sure enough, you were in that featured role. First off, it was awesome. And second off, like, I didn't realize that there's a rotation of the main characters. How does that all work? Because you have to memorize a whole bunch of roles, I'm sure. Yes. Yeah, so it gets really complicated when, you know, our company is the size, but 
you have all of the higher ranks, their jobs are to be the featured roles. And so since there's many of us, there's many different casts. So there's, you know, the first group, there's no debt for the first group, then there's a no debt for the second group. So I think there was about seven of us, which is good because you don't have one girl doing the full length of Swan Lake every night or one couple doing it every night, you have kind of a rotation. For me, for a two-week run, I did it the first weekend and then I did it the second. And then sometimes you have other roles. When you're doing a, a bigger role, they try to give you a little bit less stress. So I only did one other role and it was kind of, it was a little bit easier. It was in only one act. It was like a two-minute dance. It's almost better to have more casts, more groups, because you can kind of spread the love a little bit, give more opportunity because that's something that's so wonderful about working for Angel. He's such uh, an opportunity giver. He wants to give everyone a chance to really prove themselves and to grow because the only way to grow is to be given the chance. And that's something so wonderful about working. So that also is another plus to having a large amount of casts of Odette Odile or whatever it is. There are many different parts in the ballet, but that in particular is so demanding that have to do it every night or every other day would be just so difficult. Wow. I appreciate that. That's great to hear that you have so many different opportunities. And that, as you said, Angel affords opportunities to so many different people. Do you have any memory of or experience with working with the boys choir in the Nutcracker? What has been your experience with the boys choir? I think the best memory I have is the first time I ever saw that because going back as a student, you have you have the boombox or you have have the music and you press play and when you get to the theater it's the same thing you listen to the recording that you have and that's always what I had for the Nutcracker and coming here I realized oh we have a live orchestra we have an entire orchestra we have a conductor the music is being made right here right now and that's it live that was a huge layer for me of, of inspiration and made me even more in awe of where I was. And going into doing the Nutcracker for the first time with the company, that first year I was with the second company, and I did the snow scene for many performances. I remember the first time I was warming up backstage and I see the red blazers and this line of boys walking by. And I was like, what's going on? What, what are, are they taking a tour of backstage? I didn't know who they were. And then I'm standing backstage. I'm in the downstage left wing where I kind of see the box, the front boxes at the Academy of Music, where it has a really good view. And I saw all the red blazers right in that box standing in the line. It's something you don't even realize that, oh, I have this live music, but I didn't even realize where was the singing going to come from. So that was so incredible, just seeing that and snowing on stage. And I run on stage and the scene happens. And it was just so amazing just hearing that all happen right in front of me. So I think that's really my fondest memory because it was such a shock, almost like, wow. And just it was so amazing to have that happening live right in front of me and also for the audience to see all of that to see the conductor and the dancers and the choir it's just it's amazing that's another thing about Nutcracker that's just so magical wow I really appreciate you saying that you know it just brings another dimension to the whole experience for sure and and I can appreciate that all the more I've never been a ballerina myself or a ballet dancer but to hear how this collaboration's really meant so much to you that's incredible yeah 
Sydney, thank you so much for being here on Behind the Blazer. It's truly an honor to, to meet you, and, and I appreciate all that you've done so far in your ballet career, and I look forward to seeing you more with the Philadelphia Ballet. Thank you so much for having me. It was my pleasure. Hey, if you think this was a fun conversation, you're right. If you can't get enough of this Sydney Dolan interview, there's a whole lot more that we couldn't squeeze into this episode. So we're going to publish a 27-minute supplemental Behind the Blazer episode featuring my conversation with Sydney Dolan, first soloist of the Philadelphia Ballet. Stay tuned. It's great to hear from a prima ballerina as she is about to hit her prime. Let's return to the interview to hear about people who are at the end of their ballet careers. Also, considering what you just said, Angel, too, about how your body starts to say, I'm not going to do this anymore. I did notice that the dancers do look very youthful. You do say that it's exceptional if they're in high school, but what are the approximate ages of the dancers in the Philadelphia Ballet? Well, it ranges from 20 to 30 years old. There are some dancers that are a little bit over 30. There are some dancers that are a little bit under 20, but usually they're from 20 to 30. That's when your body is in mean condition. And it's always almost frustrating because when you're really young, your body's ready to do anything technical. You can jump all the way to the air. You can turn like a top. You can do everything. But artistically, you're still maturing. You're not there yet. And then when you're mature and you're, you know, (laughs) artist and you're then that's when your body starts to say, okay, now it's not, you can't jump as high. Can't turn so there's a lot of critics that they they criticize you when you're young oh he's too young it's smiling too much or he's, t- he's got too much energy and then when you're older oh he can't jump as high anymore i'm like well you know you have to get the artist same with musicians i'm sure that it happens to them to all the musicians that you know when you're younger you have a different passion and i think that it's great to enjoy the artists and their different times in their lives but musicians are lucky because we get to have much longer careers actively <laughs> yeah. doing what we're doing Yeah, it's just not fair. Yeah, I'm definitely feeling some of the age with being in my 40s and my son who's 13 is like, hey, daddy, can you do this? I'm like, I can, but you'd end up laughing and I'd end up hurt probably. Yeah, a dancer starts to feel like that's it. A male dancer probably in late 30s. I actually retired when I was 36, 37. You can actually go for a little bit longer. 40 is usually when you start thinking about that's it. For women, you, they can go a little bit longer, but not that much longer. And I always say, if you started to feel it, it's because the audience, they felt it probably long, long time ago. So I think that it's always best to, to leave when you're feeling great about what you've done and not when the people are sort of feeling sorry for you and waiting for you to leave the stage because there's so many great, talented dancers waiting in the wings. So... Have you ever had to break that news to dancers? I have to say not too many, not too many. I think that everyone, in most cases, I was actually surprised that they wanted to retire. For example, we have one of our greatest, most beloved dancers. This season is retiring, Jermel Johnson. He's been with the company for more than 20 years. You know, he went from the school into the second company, into the company. He's gone, he spent all his life here and he invested so much in Tibani Ballet at the time in Philadelphia Ballet now. And he's an icon now for everyone, for the dancers, for the audience, for the history of the company. And when he told me, you know, I'm retiring, I want to retire this season. I was like, why? You look incredible. <laughs> He's got the greatest physique in the ballet world. He's got an amazing flexibility. He can jump all the way to the ceiling. I was like, why? And he said, well, I think I, 
you know, I have now a family. I have to daily trip. It's very, very long. Commute is very long because he lives in Lancaster and mm -hmm. he wants to do something new. And now he's going becoming a therapist and a masseur and, and hopefully we can keep him involved because that's also something important. And when you stop being a dancer, what is the next step? Right. I think that he was really smart in finding something that is going to keep him around and also doing something that he really likes. Excellent. So, Angel, you have a long history of sustained excellence and success in your own ballet career. You just talked about how you retired from your performance when you were 36. What piqued your interest in ballet in the first place? How did you start out? Well, my mom said that I had a pacifier in my mouth and I used to dance like John Travolta because <laughs> I was born in 75. So Saturday Night Fever, it was very popular at the time. So she said that she would walk me around at the mall or shops and Saturday Night Fever. So I guess I saw the, the movie and I was dancing like John Travolta. You know, dance has always been a way for me to express myself. My sisters, they started dancing and I went to karate for a couple of days. And one of the other guys in the class got his nose broken, started to bleed and scream. And I was only six years old. So I got really scared. And I told my mom, I didn't want to go back. And then my mom used to take me to ballet class with my sisters and say, can you just sit here, stay still, because I'm going to go and buy a couple of things and I'll be right back. Don't move. She thought I was going to be you know, up on the ceiling and because I was really hyperactive. And I wasn't. I was just sitting down, looking at the ballet, looking at the, my sister's dancing. And then one day I got up and I started doing some turns around the room. And my mom said, wow, that's amazing that he learned that just by watching. And the teacher told her, I haven't told him that step yet. So uh, <laughs> that was a sign for me to start dancing. And of course, I was really teased at school. Not only teased, I was uh, bullied. Uh, yeah, bullying me. And I used to have mm -hmm. to run home because throwing rocks at me was the past time for a lot of people. I live in a very small town outside Madrid. So it was still not well accepted that I was a ballet dancer. But then my parents moved me to a bigger school in Madrid. And then, you know, things got a little better and then things got worse. And then I went to a competition in Paris and I won the gold medal and they took me to American Ballet Theater. That's quite a story. Yeah. Now you're known as a national treasure of Spain. It's amazing to see how you've grown from that little boy of six years old to that point the amazing thing is now i go back to my town the the one that i lived when i was a child and i have a street in my name and i also have a high school name after me which is wow. really amazing. you know it was funny because uh, not the last time but the time before i saw some of those kids they used to beat me up mm -hmm. i walked by and i could see that they were like with their heads down and i was like hi <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, it's normal they're kids Bullying doesn't have to be a part of life, especially in childhood. We are saddened to hear that Angel Correa was bullied. Here's some responses from our choir as to what bullying is like. Um, it's like to be someone to be mean to you, like, multiple times or over and over again. You kind of feel like you're being picked on for no reason sometimes. Maybe because this you're different, maybe you're not popular, maybe something, but you're quiet. It, it's not cool to bully other people, and it's not, it's really, you can, you can get frustrated, you can get sad, and you can feel like you're lonely and people don't really care about you, but that's not, that's not important because people do care about you. So you always have to remember that. To see bullying, it's almost like seeing someone's death, in fa but it's more of like a social death. You get embarrassed, 
And no one ever looks at you the same because you can't defend yourself and people don't think of you as an equal. What you should do is probably that, try and get them to calm down. I wouldn't say confront them yourselves because that's sometimes not the best way to deal with things, but try to get an adult to handle the situation. Well, I would probably try to stand up for myself or my friends, but sometimes it just doesn't work out that way. And what should you do? Stand up for my friends and myself. Either tell a adult, tell a teacher, and just tell the person to knock it off and stay away from you. And just try to be nice and don't, and don't get into, like, fights or anything, because that's not worth it at the end of the day. So just try and be civil with the person and just tell them to just, like, leave you alone and you, sh you should be fine. You've really come a long way. And did you have big goals from the beginning, or is it just like as you kept progressing, you kept seeing more opportunities? I've never been a goal-orientated kind of person. I think I, I work really hard for something, but I always felt that if you aim for a goal and it doesn't happen, that a lot of people are lost and they don't know what to do. I'm more of a person that, yes, working towards a goal, but always have your eyes open because, you know, there might be another door on the side that that's the one that you have to take. Yes, of course, work really hard. I mean, I work incredibly hard because I, as a dancer, I was not born with the greatest. I was not very tall. I didn't have very long legs. I didn't have the best ballet physique, but, you know, I work as much as I could uh, to try to get everything that I needed and then hope for the best. And a lot of the times during my career, every day was a, an amazing surprise. Going to Sesame Street, I was like, oh my God, they're inviting me to go to Sesame Street or going and dance for the president, like all the presidents I've danced for all of them, or, you know, do a commercial for Rolex or do a commercial with Gwyneth Paltrow. I mean, every day it was like, oh my God, I, I can't believe that I'm doing this. So yeah, I think that when you keep that sort of uh, innocence about what you're going to do with your career, that not knowing what's going to happen, that everything is sort of like a surprise. Yeah, that's wonderful. Actually, my next two questions were regarding that. Sesame Street introduces young children and their parents to various arts with the help of masters in their craft. And so they did, they turned to you and you influenced youngsters to pursue dancing. You're also credited as ushering in a new era for male ballet in America. So what does it feel like to you? I mean, you, you seem like a humble man who's accomplished so much, but can you put into words what it is that you are such an inspiration for so many, especially the male ballet performers and dancers? I mean, I think that we're seeing now more with DINA, diversity, inclusion, and it's that to see yourself represented, to see yourself on those places, to see that it's possible. I think that that is something that it's really important. We're trying to be more inclusive. I mean, in Spain, to be a ballet dancer, a male ballet dancer, it was like never seen before. I mean, I was a freak in my town. I was the only boy in the whole town that ever danced. And so that sort of gave a little bit of an opening the eyes of everyone that it's okay, you can be a ballet dancer and, and be successful. So the same thing with African-Americans in ballet, we're trying to change the exposure, how many people go on stage. When you see that someone like you goes on stage, then it makes you more comfortable to go and say, well, I could do it as well. So yeah, I think that just for people to see it, I think that that was really important. There was also another program called Born to be Wild, and it was for 
male dancers of American Ballet Theater. So we told our story. We told where we came from, how all the struggles that we had when we were kids. And I think it was also important for people to feel reflected that I could be a dancer. And, and if I have to go through that, hopefully I won't have to go through that, but that, that you can still be a ballet dancer. Right. So what was it like to appear on Sesame Street for that? Just to pick that one experience. How was that to meet Elmo and Telly and, oh, I forget who the other who the other monster was. What was it like for you, though? Yeah, it was Elmo Zoe, and I forgot the other one. It was magical. I mean, I, I understand why they last for so many years and what they do, the care and the loving and the how they treat all the guests and everyone that goes there. The same day that I was in the filming, uh, Cindy Crawford he was in the next door, door to me. You know, the way that they treat you, I mean, I, I was not the name of Cindy Crawford and also Cindy Crawford at that time it was you know it was when the, all the Ford models they were really really popular so but they treat me exactly the same as her I had a little star in the door in my dressing room they all came with like catering and are you okay or we're so excited that you're here you know the guys the puppeteers they were so funny and so fun Everyone who was laughing, everyone who was having a great time. And I think that when you create that kind of atmosphere, only great things can happen. And that's what I'm trying to, I mean, not that I'm copying what Sesame Street is doing, but I think that it's important when you're working in an environment that everyone feels like they're heard and everyone, I mean, there's always challenges. There's always difficult moments. There's always tense moments, but I always try to, I mean, we're doing art and we're working with people's feelings and we're working, we're trying to achieve a connection between human beings and, and you want that connection to be positive. So I think that that is important in the fa- the way that we do things. And I think Beatrice, it's amazing at that as well. I think that the way she, you know, she works with the orchestra it's not, it's not easy because there's so many different personalities and so many different points of view and to gather everyone together and to make them go in the same direction and make them play. I still don't even know how that works. You know, how <laughs> can all these different sounds, they can turn into something so beautiful all together. And I think it's the way that you do things and having a positive state of mind and that's i think why we work well together i mean i love working with beatrice sorry beatrice i, I don't know it's to... mutual no you know absolutely <laughs> yeah, the it's lucky all... you know they threw us together we had not really even met when Angel became artistic director and i i didn't know i thought well maybe he's got someone else he wants to bring in i had no idea but the first day he made it clear to me that he wanted me to stay and it's just a lucky when the chemistry works like this yeah because sometimes really when the artistic director comes in you know it's uh, you know not what you sign up for because <laughs> you know you were working with a previous artistic director so the new one is you know so getting to know the team is, is always scary and is always difficult and is always trying to but I think with Beatrice and with a lot of the music department it was really really easy because you can tell the passion and the love that they have for what they do, love at first sight. So, <laughs> thank you. Sweet. To sit in the room with her, with Beatrice, and with Martha, our, our pianist, for many years and put together all the music for the next ballet that we're doing. Let's just get the book of music and see what, how much music are we going to do and uh, start singing, both of us. And, you know, <laughs> uh, it's actually really, really fun. Moving on to Beatrice, if you don't mind. As a conductor, you've led the premiere performance of Philip Glass and Mary Zimmerman's Galileo Galilei. You made your Glimmer Glass de- opera debut with Lucy de Lemoore. I'm sorry, I probably butchered that one. But you have an extensive opera and theater resume. 
considering that, what has been the most exhilarating experience in your career? Oh, that would be hard to say. I think, though, that being in the theater is what's most exhilarating. So even though I like concert work and I love just doing orchestral music, I think it's not an accident that I've spent most of my career in an orchestra pit because working across genres is what really interests me serving a story or serving a choreography or it's the interdisciplinary nature of it that I absolutely have always loved. So I'm always happier in a pit than I am just standing on the stage conducting an orchestra, which is fine. I like that too, but <laughs> I think it's the multitasker in me that then enjoys it. I mean, sometimes working in opera and ballet, there are always at least two things going on, but sometimes in ballet, there are more like, for instance, when we've done works like Carmina Burana where you have, or the Nutcracker, for instance, where you have a choir, the boy, Philadelphia Boys mm -hmm. Choir, and dancers on the stage and musicians in the pit. Well, now you're firing on all pistons, right? So those are the kinds of things that I absolutely adore, putting as much art together in one room as possible. As far as putting so much art together as possible, you're in charge of the music. Do you conduct the Philadelphia Boys Choir too? Their maestro Jeff is so fantastic. He prepares the boys very, very well so that they come in only for dress rehearsal and we work together just right there on the spot. Sometimes there's an audience even at the dress rehearsal and they're very responsive. And then we're off and running and performing. I did have a, this year, unfortunately, because of COVID, we were not able to safely have the boys with us, but that's only for this year. And we're so looking forward to having them back next year. It's an incredibly important part of the evening, I think. I think Angel agrees that, you know, when the boys choir starts to sing at the end of act one, it's a real Christmas moment. You know, I think I can feel the audience responding to this sound of voices. And it's just not the same, you know, when that sound is coming from a synthesizer, which is mostly what's being done all over the country and all over the world. There's very few companies left that are still using live boys choirs or girls choirs. So we're very proud of that. And we're, we just can't wait to have them back. Yeah, the whole tradition almost now of seeing them walking towards the balconies on the sides of the stage. It's sort of like now part of the Nutcracker this year. It felt really, really strange not to have them. And it's such such a like an almost like a spiritual moment when you hear the beautiful orchestra and all of a sudden these voices, they just elevate everything. And it's like, wow, it's so beautiful. Yeah. Yes, as Beatrice has mentioned, this year we're greatly missed, but hopefully next year. We can bring them back right away. Do you know how long the choir has been working with the Philadelphia Ballet for Ooh. the Nutcracker? Well, that's a great question. We should ask Jeff. I don't know, but I think for quite a long time. Maybe they've never not had a live choir, actually, for that moment. And very big companies don't have live singers there. I won't mention their names, but big <laughs> companies are using have been using synthesizer for a long time. Sure, so it's a sure. really, it's a point of pride for us. Yeah, I know that we used to have a different Nutcracker. Maybe that was the case. But yeah, I think that always the company has used the choir. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. And I think it's really amazing to see when you do see the Nutcracker in person, you see the dancers doing their dance. And then they have this really elegant way of acknowledging the boys having sung for them. That was really cool to, to see that worked into the choreography. Is that something that naturally flows or is that something that you guys implemented? Well, like everything in ballet, it all looks natural, but it's all rehearsed. <laughs> sure. <laughs> right? It's all supposed to look easy, but that's after a lot of work and effort. That's the challenge. That's what we work on for hours and hours and hours to make it look like it's something improvised 
something that it just happened naturally, but yeah, it's hours and hours of rehearsal. (laughs) I talked to a new member from the Philadelphia Boys Choir in season one of Behind the Blazer, and he said that, you know, in singing for the Nutcracker, it's just variations on the word, uh, he brought tears to members of the audience's eyes. And that was just such a powerful moment for him and his singing that he was able to do that. And that's because of the Philadelphia Ballet. So, um, Also because of Tchaikovsky. (laughs) (laughs) No, I'm not kidding. I mean, you know, he, it's a very brilliant idea. Beatrice Afron surely liked Tchaikovsky. Not only did she marvel at his brilliance in writing the Nutcracker, but here's her historical summary at his piece, Swan Lake. On May 18th, 1891, Tchaikovsky arrived in Philadelphia to conduct a program of his own works. When the concert ended, the Academy of Music rang with applause of an adoring crowd. Afterwards, Tchaikovsky wrote to his brother Mosette, It turns out that in America, I am far better known than in Europe. I am an important bird. It's no exaggeration to say that Tchaikovsky's music is the lifeblood of the classical ballet. When we hear the phrase classical ballet, many of us think of Swan Lake, which incredibly was Tchaikovsky's very first attempt to compose for the dance. Yet, when Swan Lake premiered in Moscow in 1877, it flopped. Audiences and critics hated the choreography, the production, and even the music. Tchaikovsky was despondent, and although he later composed The Sleeping Beauty in 1890, The Nutcracker in 1892, he died believing that he was a failed composer for dance. How wrong he was! But why did audiences in Moscow so dislike the music of Swan Lake? They rejected it then for the same reason we can't do it without it today. It teems with emotion. Apart from the score's national and social dances, most of the music in Swan Lake conveys the despair of the Swan Queen, Odette, the impetuous love of Prince Siegfried, and the cruelty of Baron von Rothbart. Audiences in the late 1870s were not accustomed to such a heavy dose of musical feeling. It has been 145 years since the premiere of Swan Lake. While we may not know exactly what it will look like when it turns 200, we can be confident that it will still be here because like Tchaikovsky himself, Swan Lake is not just an important bird, it is an eternal one. Beatrice Jonah Afron. We now return to Behind the Blazer interview with Philadelphia Ballet Angel Correa and Beatrice Afron. I can't think of another work that has that, that just for that one, whatever that is, five, six, seven minutes, I'm not sure, I've never really measured it, that suddenly there's kind of this heavenly choir with no words, and then they disappear for the rest of the evening. And that was an incredibly original idea. I hadn't even thought of it that way, but I appreciate you putting that into words like that. Yeah, it's. I think it is a perfect uh, way of visualizing snow falling. I think that, you know, that that very simple word, you know, it's like the heaven is coming down on you. Like I said, it feels very spiritual almost. Um, yeah. If you're in a field and, and you see the snow coming on you, coming down on you, it just feels like, like you're in heaven. <laughs> just think, heavenly music from the Philadelphia Boys Choir. Switching gears a little, Beatrice, as the music director and conductor for the Philadelphia Ballet, how do you prepare for a performance? How do you hire the musicians? And what goes into what you do for a performance? 
our orchestra is a tenured orchestra, which means that they are, we have regular members, just like the Philadelphia Orchestra, although it's a much smaller scale. And we have one of the members of our orchestra, Ann Peterson, is also the contractor. So she does the hiring. I don't do that. In terms of the preparation, the musical preparation, I have homework. You know, I have one of these jobs where I have a homework every, all my life I've had homework. I've never had it. <laughs> <laughs> like on health, we always have homework to do. So I prepare by studying the music at home and studying the videos, archival videos, which are an incredibly important part of my learning process because before I even get to the studio, I've written in the choreographic marks in my own funny idiosyncratic way. They're usually not exactly what the, called the same names that the ballet masters call them. I'm sorry, dance. I We have a new word for ballet master, but I forget what that is. And choreographers. Uh, yeah, uh, it's a uh, now I I lost it too. Uh, rehearsal director. Rehearsal director. Uh, rehearsal director. Yeah. <laughs> and then I arrive. I generally arrive in the studio about ten days before we open. If it's not Cracker, then fewer days than that because it's the same production every year, and I know it well, and I more or less know what to expect. But if it's anything else, I arrive about two Mondays before we open. And I work with the pianists and the dancers and the choreographers and rehearsal directors and artistic director in the studio. And I conduct the pianists and we, they have a lot of information, useful information for me because they've been sitting in, in rehearsals and playing for the dancers for many weeks. And then in, my, in the second week, I have only two rehearsals with the orchestra, two, three hour rehearsals. And then uh, we have a dress rehearsal and open the same day as our dress rehearsal. So it's a very compressed process. It's much more compressed, for instance, than opera, where the conductor is there for the whole process. And it's many, many, many weeks leading up to the dress rehearsal and opening night. In ballet, it's, it's quite compressed. And I guess that's, that's why you have the freedom to not have to stay in the region. Or... Yeah, it's not that unusual for conductors to not live in the city that they conduct. It's, I mean, it's not always the case, but it's not even that unusual because as long as we're somewhere near an airport, we can mm -hmm. go get on with our lives. This is a question now to both of you, if you want whomever wants to answer it particularly, what is the hope for the future of the Philadelphia Ballet? Well, we're going to say the same thing. Yeah, that's a <laughs> Go ahead, Anil. Yeah, our building. Yay. Our building. Yeah. we got to have a building. <laughs> this is actually very nice, this exposed brick. Our building is, we're, we are growing out of our building, literally. You know, the hallways are full of boxes. Every dressing room, every, some of the dancers, they have to wait for someone else to change so they can go into the dressing room and change. So it's, it's becoming quite difficult to function. So I think that our building is going to change completely the dynamic of who we are. We will have a black box. We'll call it a black box. It's kind of like, sort of like a small theater, intimate theater kind of theater, but it's really a black box. It's not really a theater where we can invite people and we can do a special programs. We can do a lot of the programs that we do with younger company with PV2. We can do them in there. We can invite donors. We could do a lot of a lot of things that are going to really include the community into our building. And until we don't have our building, it's hard to create your identity. So hopefully that would be very soon. Keep with the momentum of creating great content, creating great 
choreography, bringing the best choreographers, keeping the orchestra with us. I think it's really important that we have a live music as much as possible. Go on tour. That's another thing that is important. Create a very strong marketing strategy so people really know what we're doing. It's, it's always really important to do great things, but people have to know that you're doing great things. So I think that those are mainly what you know my concern and the health and well-being of the dancers and the orchestra i think it's also very important the artists are very sensitive and you have to become almost their therapist in, in some cases so i think that is important that you're sensitive to that as well yeah and just keep the momentum going i think that we are in the ballet world in a very good strong position everyone wants to be part of the philadelphia ballet now and we hope that we can keep going strong as as we are that would be great to keep growing strong. COVID probably affected you, right? How have you been affected and how have you rebounded? Well, let me just say that there is no way in which we, have, we haven't been affected by COVID. I mean, except perhaps artistically. Artistically, the standards have remained incredibly high. But the effort that has gone into maintaining those high standards in this time are titanic mm -hmm. yeah no they, as uh, beatrice was mentioning usually the orchestra they have a lot of homework they can actually you know, go home and practice at home and practice by themselves and you know there's a time when we all get together and you know and then you can put into the rehearsal all the time that you have been rehearsing by yourself but with ballet you can rehearse by yourself you can do a pot of it by yourself you can right. dance by most of the times you have to dance in group and also not every dancer has a studio in their house that they can actually <laughs> dance so right yeah it's uh, during the pandemic it was really hard to see the dancers holding on to kitchen counters to sofas lamps flying out when the dancer kicked their leg and you know the, the lamp would go away i mean it was really 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 challenging and i have to say that everyone stood up and kept themselves uh, in shape kept themselves motivated really looking forward for the time where we could come back and we were lucky that we started in january 2021 and we haven't stopped since then so yeah, yeah but the orchestra i mean the orchestra hadn't played for 20 months when we got by the time we got to nutcracker that's a very very long time Right. So it was very, I mean, the dancers were struggling because they were trying to do ballet in their tiny little living rooms and the orchestra was struggling because they didn't have work. It was really, very tough. And it's, you know, it's a time when we had meant to grow. Yeah. We had meant to start working on this new building. We had meant to start doing all these things. So it's very tough for everyone yeah. in the arts. It was a big standby, like a big sort of like a pause into something that it was going at a very fast pace. You know, we started every year something great was happening. We were bringing a lot of great choreography, a lot of great things that were happening, and all of a sudden it was paused. But, I mean, we had a digital season that it went really, really well. We were able to do some filming, but it's not the same. It's not the same as being live and, and to be able to reach to people. And they always say that when you're in the theater, your heartbeat starts to go together with everyone else's. I think this is because <laughs> the, sound of the, the sound of the orchestra and the sound mm -hmm. of everyone's heartbeat, they start to beat at the same time. So it's such a powerful thing you can really experience when you're at home. So I invite everyone to come to the theater to experience that because it's, it's quite incredible. True. I mean, there's nothing like experiencing it for yourself in person. And to be challenged by that holdup has got to be really difficult. It was awful. Yeah. 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 But I have to say that once we were back on stage with Nutcracker, the, the feeling of all that time is like all that time has passed, but 
at the same time, it did. Everyone, it was so happy to be back. So they needed so much that it just felt like we never left. Like mm-hmm. we had to be gone for like two days and we were back. So yeah, I think it's really important for people to understand the first question or one of the first questions that you asked me is that life is just made of memories and to be able to have those incredible memories and going to the theater, you know, getting dressed, you don't have to dress up too much now. So you don't have to put a tuxedo or, a, or even a, or a jacket. You can just go, you know, with a nice sweater and getting dressed, having something to eat before the show or something to drink, going into the theater, having a wonderful time, and then going home and talking to your friend, to your wife, to whoever, what you have experienced. I, I think that's something that is really special. And, and that's what makes life more precious. You know, all those special moments and memories that you're never going to forget. That's true. There's nothing quite like actually being there, especially after the pandemic. The Philadelphia Boys Choir just went live recently again for the first time since the pandemic in December of 2021. Of course, that's something that we have talked about, your relationship with the Philadelphia Boys Choir. When you do have performances like the Nutcracker with the PBCC, do you receive feedback from the audience? I hear the gasps, the good gasps from the audience, (laughs) especially to my right, because, well, now we put them on both sides, but for a long time, we had them just on in one proscenium box, which was to my right. It's very clever. They kind of sneak in to their spots in the dark and people don't notice Mm -hmm. until, until they hear them. They don't see them walking in and then they hear them. And then I hear, because my ears are closer to the audience, I hear this Mm -hmm. and that's the feedback I get. Just the best feedback possible. That's literally breathtaking. Are there other ballets which might incorporate the Philadelphia Boys Choir in the future? We hope that's a great question. That would be wonderful. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I don't, I don't know any other ballets that, or any other. um, Yeah. (laughs) We'll have to come up with something. Yeah, (laughs) it would be great. Because they're wonderful. It would. it would. Yeah, they're wonderful. I got to, I did get to see them this season, actually, because we did a recording. And for the mm-hmm. first time, I went to their building. They have this amazing building not far from where our studio is, just a few blocks mm-hmm. north. I went down to their rehearsal room and loved actually seeing their faces, like, <laughs> straight on. Usually I'm sort of turning and kind of see a little bit of it. Not, you know, it goes by quickly. And it was great to actually have a chance to talk with them and to explain to them what we were doing. They were very excited when I explained to them what what this recording was for, that it could be shown in hospitals and schools and, you know, make their work more available to a greater audience. Uh, It was great to deliver that message to them because they seemed very excited about it. It They're a lovely bunch. Oh, thank you. I appreciate hearing that. Can you tell us more about this recording? Because I haven't given any prelude to it. So what is it for? And Yeah, for all the years that we've performed George Balanchine's version of The Nutcracker, we had never made a very high quality archival recording. So it was just time to do that. It's something that every, you know, com- important company should have. It's just a really good quality, just the purpose of posterity, but also to make it available to folks who might not be able to make it into the theater. And so... We don't, I think, Angel, and I'm not sure if I'm misspeaking, but at the moment, we don't have a particular plan for it, except that we're very glad to have a high quality visual and high quality audio recording, which we've really never had before. So there will be nice possibilities for that in the future that will present themselves and, mm-hmm. and we'll certainly let the choir know what they are once they come along. 
Mm-hmm. My son had the privilege of being one of the choristers in that. So yeah, that was cool. Is there anything else that you'd like to add about about the Philadelphia Ballet or even about the Philadelphia Boys Choir that we might not have touched on in this interview? I think I talk a lot, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'll just just express my gratitude, you know, to the organization. It's there was a, someone previous to Jeff that whose name I don't remember. He was the the gentleman who conducted the choir before he did. But most of the years I've been there, I've been so happy to be working with Jeff, and he's clearly has a very positive energy because that's what we're getting from the the boys. And I have to also give them a big shout out because we get a certain group of boys at dress rehearsal, and then throughout the rest of the run they're not always the same. They shuffle around, as you well know, and they, because they're so busy, some of them are singing over at the Kimball Center at the same time that we're doing a performance at the Academy. So they're obviously very flexible and they're very well trained to follow a new conductor. I mean, no two conductors, you know, lead in exactly the same way. And I'm always very impressed that a kind of a new batch of boys comes in and they, they do just great. So we're very grateful for that because we know that they're very much in demand all through the, especially I would imagine that the Christmas season is probably their busiest. Is that, is that the case? Yes, it is. It's uh, it's kind of no sleep December. <laughs> right. I can imagine. That's what it feels they've like. Got, and they must be traveling and I don't even know what all they do. But anyway, I'm very grateful that no matter what batch we get, they 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 do just great. So we're always so happy to see them. They're so polite. I, I always, as they're walking out of the balconies, I'm walking towards the, the backstage and I'm always telling them, you guys are great. You guys were great. You got, and they're just like looking at me like, uh, okay, who are you? <laughs> well, sometimes I'll stop them when they're crossing back over and give them a few notes. And they're great about that too. Sometimes they'll say, hey, you know what happened tonight? Maybe we can do something a little different next time. And they're just lovely, you know. I'm glad to hear that there are such willing students. So if someone wanted to donate to the Philadelphia Ballet or be part of the organization or have any other questions, what should they do? Well, they should go to our website, right, Angel? Yes, correct. They should go to our website. Uh, there is a whole uh, uh, site where uh, there's donations. And if you want to be part of our family, we'll be more than happy to include you into keeping our, you know, our dancers and the organization going. And I think that is, uh, you know, not even a small donation is too small. PhiladelphiaBallet.org. That's it. PhiladelphiaBallet.org. Thank you so much. Thanks to Beatrice Afron and Angel Correa for interviewing here with Philadelphia Boys Choir Corral's podcast, Behind the Blazer. Again, Beatrice Afron and Angel Correa are from the Philadelphia Ballet, and we thank you so much for spending this time with us. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Thank you. This episode of Behind the Blazer Season 2 features the vocal talents of Luke Brooks, Campbell Schumann, Samir Abbas, Colby Grimm, Gabriel Beckett, Kevin Hurley, David Sigmund, Tucker Weiss, Justin Kai, Eric Frasch, Mark Hauk, Christopher Sempier, Jonah Serrata, and Boo Long. Thanks to all who have participated in the creation of this episode. <laughs>
Behind the Blazer is the official podcast of the Philadelphia Boys Choir and Chorale. Please like, share, subscribe, and give a five-star review. Support our organization, the Philadelphia Boys and Girls Choirs, by donating at pbgcsings.org slash donate. Again, that's pbgcsings.org slash donate. Bring the